We've been learning from the letter of Ephesians, so you can open your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2 or tap on your Bible app or whatever Bible you have access to. We're still in these verses from 11 to 22, and we are discovering God's answer to the problem of disunity or division, mainly the division between God and us, and then the problem of division we experience between one another. So this week, specifically in some of these verses, we're going to see how Paul describes who the people of God are, who the Christian is. So this is a, we've given it a title these last couple of weeks, talking about the unity and the division between the Jew and the Gentile. It's, it's, we've called it, we are one in Christ. That's kind of our theme. We are one in Christ Jesus. We are made one person. One, we have the same unity of the spirit, the bond of peace. And it's a message series about the sin that separates and a Savior who unifies. And it was supposed to be a three-part message sermon series, but now it's going to be um, maybe like four slash five. So this week is week three, and um, the title is God's New City. God's New City. Last week was God's New Race. So we've been learning about how God is recreating mankind. People are being born again into the Spirit of God because of what Jesus has done. And so God is creating a new mankind to live in God's new city. We've been learning about this church called uh, the church in Ephesus. It was an ancient city. Think of like modern day Turkey around the Mediterranean. And uh, it was, had to be reminded of a few important truths. This church had within it Jews and Gentiles, two different people groups who, quite frankly, did not like one another. They did not worship the same gods at one point. They did not eat the same foods, and they did not look the same way. They were completely different. They could not have been any more different. And because of these differences, there was a lot of animosity and hatred towards one another. This hatred existed until, up until the point, the gospel which the Bible calls the good news of Jesus Christ. It, it, this hatred existed up until that point where the gospel reshaped their heart and reshaped their mind, up until the point the gospel saved them. It's a church much like ours today, not much different. We certainly look different, but had the same type of people in it. They believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. He was the long-promised Savior of the world. They believed God had sent his one and only son into the world and that God's son would seek and save those who are far from God. So Jesus, God sent Jesus into the world to go and seek and save those who are lost, who are far from God. They trusted the word which was brought to them. They trusted the good news that was delivered to them, that anyone who would believe in Jesus and who he was and what he accomplished, that those people would be saved. They'd be saved from God's coming judgment of sin. They'd be saved to new life. They'd be cleansed. They'd be forgiven. They'd be set free from their bondage to their sin. That all in all, they would be saved. And if it were not for this good news, we could speculate that the Jews and the Gentiles would still be not only dead in their sin, spiritually dead, but they'd still be living in this continuous cycle of hatred towards one another. But they heard this message of hope and this message of truth. They responded to it by believing. And therefore, they were removed from the kingdom of darkness into God's kingdom of light. They were given a new heart and a new mind, and they were unified by the Spirit of God. They were given God's Spirit. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You are the temple of the living God. Paul is telling them, you are now one. You have unity because of what God has done. Unity with God and unity with one another. Paul's main point of these 
I got some competition today. Paul's main point of these 11 verses is essentially those who are far from God can now be united with him because of what he has done. He has sent his son into the world to unify people to himself. Not only is the Christian united with God, but now we can be united with one another. There is no room for hatred or division or segregation within the church because of how we look or how we talk or even where we come from or anything like that. The Spirit of God is the great unifier. And Paul tells this Ephesian church that through him, Jesus, we both have access to one Spirit to the Father, in one Spirit to the Father. So these verses are written predominantly to this new Gentile church, those who were not Jews coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And he's reminding them, yes, at one point you were far from God. You're not part of the nation of Israel. You didn't have access to God's covenant laws or his promises. But now he has made a way. Friends, we should never forget what the cross of Jesus Christ has done for us. We read about it and what he's done for the Ephesians, but let us never forget what it has done for us. Because Jesus was the Son of God who never sinned, yet he was treated as the worst of sinners. He was a perfect friend, yet he was betrayed by a close friend. He never broke God's laws, yet he was treated as if he had broke every single one. And although our hearts tend to default towards sorrow when we think about the cross of Jesus Christ, because it was a dark day, our sin held the Son of God on a cross to be murdered. It was the wickedness of men that killed him. And so although our hearts tend to default towards sorrow, we must remind ourselves, and let me remind you, that Jesus is no longer dead. He's no longer in the grave because the Spirit of God raised him from the dead. Amen? And this proves that he is who he said he was. He was and is the Son of God who came to the world to seek and save the lost. The resurrection of Jesus Christ defeated the evil which accused him of breaking God's laws. It defeated the darkness that whipped him and beat him and flogged him and murdered him. The resurrection defeated the grave designed to keep him there. Jesus is the good king sent to this earth to establish God's kingdom, a kingdom which will never end. And anyone who would trust this good king, who would give their allegiance to him, they also will never taste the sting of death. Jesus is the son of God who entered into our humanity to pay the debt that we owe towards God because of our sin. And so now we can walk in newness of life. Now we have the power to walk away from the sin that once enslaved us and follow Jesus and holiness. This is what we have spent our time learning about in this letter, specifically sent to the Ephesians. Then we've spent a little bit of time helping us understand how this spirit of unity, the bond of peace, thinking about how those terms help us apply this truth to our everyday lives. What is the church called to in terms of unity or division or separation? Last week, we spent a bit of time understanding the way our culture has attempted to make sure we are living as unified people. Our culture, um, the times, our society, the world has created a new morality, as it's called, the way in which we all should live if we want to be in peace. But what we've learned is in their attempt to unify people, they're just pushing people further and further apart. This is because... Um, this world has this insatiable desire to reorder temporary structures. This world has a desire to reorder temporary structures. And 
This is quite literally all of what the world does. Those who do not worship Jesus as God and King, they have no hope. They have no direction. They have no future promise of a resurrection. This world is all they know. This world is the end-all, be-all. If this world is not perfect, their lives are distraught. Therefore, they spend much of their time consumed with building a perfect, peaceful utopia here and now, never looking forward to the glory we'll receive in heaven. This is the great challenge of the people of our day. The most influential and the most powerful and loudest voices in our society desire to see people get along, to be nice, to live in peace. I mean, I, I desire that too. I think we would all say, yeah, that's, that would be a really amazing thing. But in their attempt to create this perfect utopia, they end up distancing people from one another because they don't understand God's design for unity. They reject God's love and his spirit. They do not believe Jesus is the one who has the power to make those who are enemies today into friends tomorrow. They don't think that's possible. They do not believe how God has united us in Jesus Christ. This world is unaware that there is a city that exists within the city. It's the church. So that's the big idea today. God's household, and we'll see these verses in just a minute. God's household is like a city within the city. This is the theme of these verses we will learn from today. First, if you were to start back at verse 11, Paul describes the history of the separation between the Jew and the Gentile, which means we are separated from God and separated from one another. Second, Paul reminded us how through Jesus, God has made a way for those who are far off to be brought near. That's the great hope of the world, that people who are living far from God, people who are dead in their sin, people who do not recognize who God is as creator, they do not obey his laws, they do not desire to obey his laws and commandments, it is possible for those people, although they hate God, to be brought near to him because of what Jesus has accomplished. And as people are brought near, his spirit is making them into a new race, a new mankind. And this is what challenged us last week because what Paul is saying is that God has a new humanity and that although everyone is created uniquely with a certain amount of melanin in their skin and a certain language of their tongue and a certain culture and society in which they grew up in, what God has done is says that is not as important as the spirit that lives within you. We are unified by the spirit of God, not the color of our skin. That is not how the church is meant to unify itself. We have to set the uniqueness of our created being, although it's unique and God did that for a reason and it's great and it's beautiful, that is not what is most important in every single person's life. What is important is the spirit that is within them. We planted this church. We started this church so people would know that it is possible to have the spirit of God into all their lives, to make them new, to be forgiven. This is where we unify around. Now, what we will learn here is how Paul further describes this new race of people, a completely new mankind, born again into the Spirit of God. Paul tells us this new race of people are part of this new city, a heavenly city. And he does this by using some familiar metaphors. There's three of them specifically in verses 18 and 19. There's a political metaphor. There's a familial, a family metaphor. And then there's a religious metaphor. We're going to cover two of those three today and then we'll cover the next one next week. Next one next week. I didn't even plan that. So look at, ver- I'm going to start reading from verse 11 again. We've read these verses quite a few times. Um, I'm going to read them again and I'll stop around verse 20. 
So Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Therefore, remember that one time you were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made by the hands, made in the flesh by the hands. Paul says, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and commandments as expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 17, and he, that's Jesus, He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, because we both have access in one spirit to the Father, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. In those verses, Paul begins to describe the Gentile before they were Christians. They're not strangers and they're not aliens. They have been brought near. Now, this actually is quite tough for us to understand because I would dare suspect if there is somebody in this room, it's a very, very small amount of people who have ever experienced living in a land as a stranger or an alien. I mean, it's hard for me to understand this because I've always uh, been blessed as a full citizen of the nation in which I live. I enjoy living under its laws and its protections and its constitution. I have never really felt as a stranger or an alien. In this context, though, the stranger is a foreigner in the land. These terms are here to show just how far removed the Gentile was, just how different they were because they were far from God. They were both temporary travelers in a land considered to be a foreigner or a stranger And this foreigner had no rights in the land that they were traveling in. They could be in the land. They had no rights of the land, no guaranteed protection from the land or the people or its laws. And they were more or less, the the alien word there is like a long-term resident, a legal alien, a foreigner who could live in the land, but you don't enjoy legal citizenship. You're just kind of here. You can build a life. You can make money. You can raise your family, but you don't enjoy anything that the nation gives to its citizens. That's what Paul is using to describe who the Gentiles, who those who were far from God once were. Now, this is where we just need to slow down and remember that a lot of us have never experienced that. If you have lived in another land, not as a full citizen, you may understand what this is about. If you are here and not a full citizen or a legal alien, you understand what this is about. But I will admit, I have no idea what this is like. I just don't. I never think about anything when I wake up, whether this constitution is going to protect me or not. I've always lived here. I'm a citizen. Paul says, if you're far from God, you're a stranger and you're an alien to him. These words are used by Paul for a reason, to press home this idea that Gentiles were at one point not a part, not a citizen of God's city. They were not part of his house. They were not a citizen of his city. They may have been in close proximity to God, but they did not know God. Therefore, they they did not recognize his glory or understand his laws or even live within his promises. In a sense, 
Paul's repeating what he's already said in verse 12. Those who are far from God, the Gentiles, were living without hope in the world. And this raises the first question of the morning. The first question to you. Are you today in close proximity to God's kingdom, God's city, but still a stranger to him? This may be a reality for some of us here today. Some of us were called, um, you know, those kids that were born in the church. You know, they call you nursery babies. You've been in church so long, you don't know anything different. You've been going to church every Sunday your entire life. Some of us have been attending here since we've started. But are you still a stranger and alien to God? I can never stand up here. Anybody that comes and teaches the Bible here on Sunday morning could never assume that everybody they're talking to are Christians, even if you're here every week. That can never be assumed. There are people here today who, quite frankly, have been in close proximity to God's city, but are not legal citizens of it. You are around God's people. You do God-like things. You go to God-like church services. You may even act like God's people, yet your heart is so far from him, you are a stranger to him. Friends, this is the hard reality that some of us, thinking that if we just do the right things, we'll be welcomed by God, but that is not true. The Bible says that only your faith and your trust and your belief in who Jesus is and what he has done for you will guarantee your salvation will guarantee your full rights as a citizen in his kingdom. I would plead with you, don't leave here another Sunday without examining whether you are a full citizen of God's kingdom or just someone who's close to it. Attending a service on Sunday morning does not make you a better person in the eyes of God. Walking into church with a smile on your face will not bring joy to God if you are far from him. See, God's not simply happy that you are here. God desires for you to be within his kingdom. And some of us have just been around God's people, but we're not part of God's people. See, only your faith and trust in Jesus will cause you to go from a stranger to a member of his house. So are you a stranger? Are you an alien to God? Are you living without hope? So I would ask that you'd walk away from your life of sin, that you embrace Jesus Christ maybe for the first time today, and you'd recognize who he is, and you'd commit your life to him. You'd say, I believe in who he is. I trust that what he has done is enough for me. I believe that he will raise me on the last day, just as the song that we just sang. Wasn't that a great song? Just as that song that we just sang. Because if you're a stranger and alien to God, you are without hope. Now, your, your life might be put together. Maybe, you know, you might have a great job. You may have a great family. And your family may even like you. You may have friends who actually like you. And you live in relative safety. And you drive a car that has zero rust on it. In Michigan. It's a miracle. But just because you're close to God's people does not make you a citizen of his kingdom. And therefore, you're still without hope, although your physical world looks completely fine and put together. We're all aware of what it feels like to live without hope. We are all aware that at one point, we felt as though life was not worth living until we met God, until we walked with Jesus, until we trusted him for our salvation. At one point, and even today, we all question whether God is good. Just in general, with everything that goes on in the world, is God good? And does a good God exist? 
That's a question we still have. And this is because we experience pain. Whether it's visible or invisible pain, we've, we've all suffered in a way that has caused us to question whether there is a purpose to this so-called life. So maybe you're here today and you're in the middle of a dark time. Maybe you're here today and you're in the middle of a dark time with your relationships because they have not gone the way you thought they would go. Your career isn't what you thought it would be. The calling in which you thought you were born on this world to fulfill is not working out the way you thought it would work out. You're struggling mentally or emotionally, financially, physically, relationally. You may be here and experiencing all of that. And those are the things that we do struggle with even as Christians or non-Christians. There is real pain in this world. But if you have the Spirit of God indwelling your body, you have hope even in the midst of all of that because it's never about this temporary life. It's always about the glory to come. The hope you are searching for, if this is you and you're still searching for where you put your hope or what's going to wake you up tomorrow, the hope you are searching for will never be discovered under the rock of a new relationship or a bigger pile of money, or a renewed physical or mental health. The hope you are searching for is not hidden at all. The hope you desire, the hope you want, doesn't even have to be earned. You don't obtain it through a degree. You don't maintain it with a healthy healthy marriage. You're not required to be in the right emotional or mental state to live within it. Amen. Real hope, true, lasting Real hope is discovered on a hill they called Calvary, the place where Jesus was crucified. Real hope was lifted up on a cross, the Son of God. Real hope was discovered when the tomb was empty because Jesus, who said he was the Son of God, was not there three days later. Real hope is that which points to a new, resurrected life, a new life. A life after this life we live here on earth. A life without pain or suffering or crying or sickness or disease or abuse and on and on and on. That's where hope is found. In the life to come. We who were once far off had no idea of God at some point in our life. But now we have been given knowledge of God through his word. We have hope not because Jesus is a magic genie. The Christian does not have hope because Jesus is fulfilling all of our desires. Most of what you desire is wrong. That's why he's not giving him to you. He's protecting you. But because we have hope, but because the power of the Holy Spirit has united us with God. That's why we have hope. We know who God is. We have hope. So whatever it is today, whatever is tormenting your soul, I would plead with you, hold on to the hope that you've been given if you're a believer because one day this world and all that comes with it will end and we will reign with Jesus in a new kingdom that will last forever. A perfect kingdom. A kingdom where we are all rightful citizens. A kingdom where we will not be treated as aliens or foreigners. 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 But where, it happens once a week. My R's. But where we will be treated as family. That's what Paul says. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So the first metaphor is political. No longer foreigners or aliens, but citizens. Next is familial. 
He says, we are members of the household of God, which means we're part of God's family. Family is a tough word for a lot of us. A word which makes some of us cringe, maybe even weep. There are many here today who have horrible experience with family. Some of us have lived with fathers and mothers who were abusive, both physically and emotionally. There are people here who do not know who their father or mother is. Some of us have siblings or children who are absolutely toxic towards their family members, and even toxic towards themselves. Quite frankly, we're involved in this as well. We're not perfect members of our earthly families either. Our earthly families, although established by God to be good and wholesome, they're frankly just messed up. Each family has some significant issues, no matter how great their life looks on the outside, because we all struggle with sin. So I hope these words encourage you, members of the household of God. Not only has God provided a new life for you to live in and hope to hold on to, he has provided a new family for you to live within, a new family to be a part of. Now, although each one of us is not perfect, and although we still live in the flesh, which tempts us to sin against God and sin against one another, just be encouraged that if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a part of his family. And so you're sitting next to your brother or your sister. Yes, some of us are a bit weird. Some of us look different. Some of us are a bit awkward to talk to. Can't hold a conversation to save our lives. Some of us are a bit cranky. Even on Sunday mornings, you know who you are. We all come from different backgrounds. Some of us are a bit too happy all of the time, which is annoying. Some of us are a bit dull. Some of us are a little more sharp. Some of us understand. Here's the most important thing, and I get a lot of, get a lot of critics on this one. I have a brother or sister in Christ in this church that will never agree with me. Some of us understand how important it is to know and to recognize what a good burger tastes like, and others don't care. But we are all sons and daughters of the same God. We're all different. Yet we're all sinners who are saved by grace and now have what? Hope. We're all sons and daughters of a heavenly father in whom, and this is, this is really important for some of you, because maybe what has kept you from relationship with God is because he is your heavenly father and you don't want another father because you've been there, done that, and you're not going back. I will recognize that there are a lot of bad fathers. But we are all sons and daughters of a heavenly father in whom there is no deceit, in whom there is no darkness, in whom there is no lying or cheating or abuse or neglect. He is perfect in every single way. This is why we are to try with all of our might to remember that we have a heavenly father who loves us even when life doesn't go as planned. And we are to honor this calling as his son or as his daughter by being who he has called his family to be. We must be the household of God. That's our first calling. If we are members of his household, we are to be his children, his sons and his daughters. And this means that the grace in your life the grace of Jesus Christ in your life will bear the fruit of love for your brother or your sister. What that means is, if you have received grace, if you're thankful that although you didn't deserve it, God sent his son and that son paid your debt and now you can live a new life. You are saved from eternal judgment. 
You have been walking in newness of spirit. Your old self is gone. The new self is here. God is renewing you day by day. This means there will be fruit that grows in your life. And that fruit will be the love for your brother or your sister in Christ. Your salvation, which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, according to the word of God alone, all to the glory of God alone, will, over time, produce an increasing desire to be for one another, not against one another. We don't fight against one another. We fight for one another in this life. As the household of God, there are some 59 commands in the New Testament of who we are to be to one another. 59 times in the New Testament letters sent to the churches of who we are to be. Now, some of them are repeated, but one another or towards each other is repeated some 59 times with a commandment given within it. Now, let me be very, very clear. These things do not create your salvation. They're not the root of why you're saved. This is the fruit of why you're saved. Some of you would say, well, you just said that some people are here and they're in close proximity with God's family and they're doing church things, but they're not the church. That's true. So as I read these things, here's what I would ask of you. If these things make you cringe, maybe you're a stranger or an alien and a foreigner to God. Maybe you are in a season of darkness and need to repent. Maybe you need to be saved. These things are the fruit of your salvation. They're not what roots your salvation. They don't produce salvation. They're the result of salvation. We cannot be more clear in this church week after week. Nobody earns the right to be called a Christian. That is not an earned thing. You did not earn the right to be saved by God because you were smart or cute or handsome or winsome or because you had some knowledge that nobody else had. The Bible is very explicit over and over and over again. People are saved by grace, which means they didn't even deserve it. So that's how we are to treat one another. So if you have experienced the grace of God in your life, as I read some of these things, just think through them. Are you involved in some of these? Do you like some of these? Do you absolutely just hate some of these? Now, there's 59 of them. I will not read all 59. Although I I may get close, and some of them will be behind me. It says, be at peace with one another. Love one another, which is mentioned 13 other times in the New Testament. Love one another. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourself. Live in harmony with one another. Stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another then, just as Christ, that's Jesus, has accepted you. Instruct one another. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I can explain that one. Just slow down, everybody, okay? Don't be getting up and start kissing each other. Have equal concern for each other. Carry each other's burdens. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Do not lie to each other. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Love each other. There it goes again. Encourage one another. Don't grumble. Stop grumbling. Stop grumbling against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for each other. 
Offer hospitality without grumbling. You have to do it. Each one should be using whatever gifts they have to serve others, serve one another. This is just a short list of a long list of commands in the New Testament about who God's people are to be, the household of God. Brothers and sisters, we're a family. And so the the basic idea is that if you love Jesus, you love his people. It is impossible to live in unity. It is not possible for us to follow the commands of God if we first do not love Jesus because we can never get to this list unless we love Jesus himself. Friends, they could say it over and over and over again. If you love Jesus, you love his church. Now, we've all been stuck in a season where we've said, well, I like God, I don't like organized religion, and those Christians are weird. And I'm not going to another church. We've all been there. But let me challenge you. We don't have a whole lot of that happening in the Bible. God doesn't give a permission and says, well, if you've been hurt by a church, just never go back. Your house is fine. I'm cool with it. None of us can obey the commandments towards one another unless we're surrounded by one another. If you love his people, you love his church. If you love Jesus, you love his people. And yeah, I'm difficult to love, right? You're worse. I'm just saying, (laughs) I'm not easy to love. And neither are you. But I don't leave because you're not easy to love. If you have experienced the grace of Jesus Christ in your life, you give that grace to other people freely. That's how you know you've experienced it. That's how you know you've been given it. So now what does this have to do with unity or division or the problem that our world is experiencing or even within the church that we are experiencing? What do these verses have to say about the Christian involving themselves of acts of justice that we've talked about the last couple of weeks? last few weeks, we have thought through how this message to the Ephesian church applies to the sin that we see each and every day. Last week, I shared about how Christians should not go about involving themselves in justice. I took a, a leap of faith. I asked you to be gracious with me. I said, and I think I still stand by it, the church isn't involved in social justice, not the way the world wants us to be. Justice is riddled throughout the Bible. God's people are to help the oppressed, serve the poor, lay down their lives for anyone who is in need. But we shall not go about it the way the world goes about it because it's just riddled with bitterness and unforgiveness. And really what the Bible instructs us to do over and over and over again is to start here within our walls first. And that's why this first week, we're not going to move past the household of God because this is where it starts. If we're going to be anything to anybody outside of the church, we must be to each other that thing first. We must guard our hearts from operating the, world, the way the world operates. We are not our own. We belong to God. We are his family, and therefore we should reflect his image and his character to one another first so a world outside of the church can see something absolutely different which is why we do things the way we do things at this church. Now, we're intentional most of the time of the things that we do. Because if someone is here for the first time, I'm very thankful you're here. You are welcomed here. You're not perfect, and neither are we, so you're welcome, okay? But we want people to come to church, 
see a group of people worshiping God and feel somewhat out of place because they have no idea what's going on. And this is strange, but we want them to be drawn into the beauty of it. We want them to realize that this is the only place this community like this exists. A community of people who are trying with all their might by the grace of God to not be only about themselves, but to be about Jesus and one another. There has to be a tension that exists in our worship services or our Bible studies or our connect groups where people say, I don't know why they do the things they do, but it's quite intriguing. I've never met people like this, but I, there's something there and I don't know what it is. Right, it's the grace of God. So that's why if we're going to serve anybody in this world and bring justice, biblical justice to where it needs to be, we must first and foremost become the household of God. We cannot bring people into a community which does not exist. So two things I'll leave you with. There are two things that we're going to do as part of the household of God. And in the next several weeks, we're going to unfold some other things about who the church is to be in the world, how we are to reflect God's character to people who are oppressed, who are enslaved, who need support, things like that. But it first starts with us. The Bible says judgment starts in the house of God. So remember, whenever you feel like judging people outside of the church, don't be amazed that people aren't operating the way you think they should operate like a Christian because they're not. We should judge ourselves against the standard of God's word first. That's who we are to be. So number one, we are called to personal holiness. Over and over again in the New Testament, even Jesus has said, now that you have this message, go and make disciples. Tell everybody you've met. And go in your town, and then the town around it, and then another town. Go and make disciples. Well, what are we making disciples of? Disciples of Jesus. What does, do disciples of Jesus do? They follow him. They obey him. Even Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my, my commandments and laws. This is how I know you're my disciple. That you do what I ask you to do. You don't do it out of some sort of way to earn salvation. You do it because you know Jesus and because you love him. So we are called the personal holiness. God calls us to be holy as he is holy. We're called to be righteous, pure in thought, pure motives, pure acts. If we are not as individuals first, denying our flesh and embracing a new holy life, we have no business telling the world how to live. I don't want to be a church who goes throughout the week serving a bunch of people, making their lives better, only to get to the other days of the week and completely tank and sin. Now, we're all hypocrites at some level. I get that. I'm a hypocrite every single day. There's things I know I should do, and I don't. There's things I shouldn't do, and I do them. There's ways I want to live, and I don't always follow through. You're a hypocrite, just like me. Welcome to the club. But friends, if we're not pursuing personal holiness, and we're outside of these walls telling people, how we can help them and serve them without calling them to walk with Jesus in holiness? We're confusing a world. We are confusing a world. Those who are dead in their sin, as Paul says, must see a new way to live, new standard of living, new guardrails for protection in their lives, new accountability structures, new desires in their heart and in their mind. People outside of the church must see a different people inside of the church, but not necessarily a smarter people or a more moral people. That's not necessarily the goal, but a gracious people, 
a loving people, a kind people, a patient people. That's what they must see. We should never forget that all that we enjoy about God has been given to us by grace. You did not earn it. And you don't deserve it. Yet God still gave it to us. He still sent his son and then he saved us. This is important to know because if we pursue holiness, this is the idea that before people ever want to sit down with you and read the Bible, which is you should be asking people to do, or before they even wonder and inquire about your church and what you're learning, what you're learning, or how you're living, what you're doing, you are the only Bible some people are ever going to read. Your life. That's what they're going to observe first. Before you get someone to pick up a Bible, they are reading you, your attitudes, your actions. And I would say, are those attitudes and actions, I would challenge you, are they pointing people towards Jesus or pointing people away from Jesus? This is a huge challenge to us. Number two, that's personal holiness. And as the household of God, then we think about corporate holiness. So it's like on an individual basis, then as a church together, as a family, we must labor together to be a city within the city, a different type of community, a holy community, a righteous community, gracious and kind and loving and patient with people. We must give somebody a different option, a way of living. They must look within this church and not see perfect people, but see a people who are following Jesus Christ because they know they're sinners. Let us labor together to be a city within a city. God's household is like a new city with new people which exist inside of Portage and Kalamazoo. And this is what we're asking God to form us into, to be more like Jesus. So when people come or when they see it, they say, I don't, I don't know why you guys are acting like that, but I like it. Why do you do the things you do? Well, because of what Jesus has done for us. Why do you forgive one another like that? You guys are some pretty wicked people, but you're still friends. Right. You know how wicked I was towards God and that he still sent Jesus to die for me? Why don't you guys hold grievances against one another? Why don't you keep a record of wrongs against one another? You know, that's really convenient. You can remind people how bad they are. It's actually easier, you know, to whip that book out and share that with them. We don't do that because God has not done that to us. Because he has removed us from our sin. We are no longer sinful in the eyes of God. We must be a city within a city. And so we're called the personal holiness and corporate holiness. Because we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Church, that's what we're called to. And although it just feels like a bunch of do's I just gave you, like do this and do that, let me remind you that we do these things because of what has been done for us. In fact, as you read the New Testament, most of the letters in the New Testament, what they first do is remind the church of what God has done, the first couple of chapters. Here's what's already done for you. Here's what's already been accomplished for you. Here's the gift waiting to be given to you. And then the other chapters are, now go and do. It's not the other way around. Paul doesn't say, do these things so you can receive God's grace. Paul says, you've already received God's grace. Now you have been set free to go and do these things. 
That's the gospel. It's not the other way around. So together as a church, may we pursue personal holiness and corporate holiness together. I'm going to pray and then we'll transition to communion.